reset the thermostats today. I like it cold. Um, don't like it hot. But I, I think that's one of the uh, that's one of the one another's of Scripture, right? It's this uh, bearing with one another's preferences and answering. So, uh, so thank you everyone for helping me lead us in worship and preparing our hearts for the receiving of the word. Let's uh, open our Bibles now to. Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, that's page 828, if you're using the Black Bibles, we're going to be in, beginning in verse 13, Matthew 23, 13. Last week we saw from the beginning of chapter 23 that Jesus warned the crowds and his disciples about the religious leaders. Now in our text today, uh, 13 through um, 36, Jesus turns and, and speaks directly to the religious leaders, right? So he was warning the crowds about the religious leaders, and now it's like he is confronting the leaders themselves. And you'll notice that Jesus uses some of the sternest language that we've ever seen him use in, in this passage. So would you stand once again in honor of God's word? And as I read this, you know, just be, be thinking about that. Like, why is Jesus using such harsh language? Like, what, what is, why is this so So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy 
and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Thanks be to God for this word. Please be seated. Like I said, pretty harsh language, stern language that we're not used to hearing from the mouth of Jesus. But you notice the repetition uh, there. You, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. What is it that has Jesus so impassioned? What is it that, would, that bring, is bringing out this righteous anger of Jesus today? Well, the title of the message is Judgment on False Religion. Judgment on False Religion. Again, we see the word hypocrites um, repeated several times, we talked about that last week, hypocrisy, and that's what I mean when I say false religion. Really, false religion would encompass um, false teaching, teaching something that is not true, teaching something that, that hinders people from following Christ, that takes them, distorting the gospel in some way, that would be false religion, right? But another aspect of false religion would be, you know, maybe you're, you're in a situation where the gospel is being taught, but but you're you're being a hypocrite. You know, you're 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 looking good on the outside. You 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 know you are majoring on externalism, but meanwhile your heart is far from God, meanwhile you're not living what you say you believe. That's that's false religion. And that's what is bringing out these these this harsh um, condemnation from, from Jesus. And again, specifically he's He's speaking to the religious leaders, right? Because as I said last week, that uh, false religion is, is, is a grievous sin for anyone to do, but especially in leadership. Because in doing so, they're actually leading others astray, right? Leading many astray. And so my prayer today is that we will understand what Jesus is, is rebuking, understand what Jesus is condemning here, um, and that we'll be careful not to um, have any false religion in us, right? We're in Christ, praise God, we're forgiven of our sins, we know we, we're, we're made right with, with God through the finished work of Jesus, but I know there's a little bit of, there can be a little bit of Pharisee in each one of us, right? And so may God expose that and root that out and may we bring that under the under the gospel today. So notice that Jesus gives a series of woes to uh, to the, the religious leaders, right? Seven of them in the passage today. 
What is woe? Well, that word is used 112 times in the Bible, and almost every time it's used, it serves as an oracle of judgment, as a, as a prediction of condemnation. So it's saying, woe is you, because judgment is coming upon you. And like I read earlier in Amos, God would usually issue these through his prophets, right? God would send his prophets to the nation to the, really as kind of like prosecuting attorneys to declare the guilt of the nation to say, you guys have broken the covenant with your God. Here's what you're doing wrong. And if you don't turn from your ways, then judgment is coming upon you. It was a woe. It was, it was a pronouncement that judgment was coming. And I don't know if you notice this from the scripture reading in Amos, but it's like a woe is a declaration of coming judgment, but it has mixed in it sorrow and pity for the, for the person. It's like, oh, how terrible is this fate that awaits you? It's like, it's almost like a, a final plea with the, with whoever it's being delivered to, right? Turn from your ways. Did you notice in Amos at the very beginning, he said he, he, he was giving this in lamentation for the nation. He was lamenting the fact that it had come to this. Change your ways, repent. Because of the fate that awaits you, it's terrible. And so Jesus here is taking up that mantle of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is speaking as Israel's prophet. He's declaring judgment on Israel and especially on the religious leaders. And so here in chapter 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes. And in scripture, the number seven often carries the idea of completion. Right? So it's like this is a, this is a complete declaration from Jesus. In other words, this is it for the religious leaders. Judgment is coming. And not only on them, but on Jerusalem as well, as we'll see the next chapter and even really the next passage. So there's seven woes for us to work through. We'll, I wanted to try to handle them all in, in one setting, so we'll try to move kind of quickly, but I'll give a summary statement for each woe, and, and uh, you'll notice if, if you're taking notes from the bulletin, I grouped a, a few times, I grouped a couple of them together because they had similar themes. So in verses 13 through 15, Jesus declares the first two woes, You'll notice in the ESV, there's not a, a verse 14. This is one of those textual variants. Um, all the best early manuscripts didn't have verse 14. It was probably um, an error of a scribe trying to trying to uh, harmonize a passage from Luke and, or, and Mark. So that's why there's no verse 14. But, but uh, we can have confidence that this is the, the right reading. The manuscript evidence says that. So in verses 13 and 15, we see the first two woes here, back to back, same theme. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Think about that. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces like a slamming door. Jesus continues, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 15. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and yet and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So I saw those having a similar theme, and I summarized it this way. What are the religious leaders doing? Well, they hinder people from following Christ. 
and hinder people from following Christ. As the religious leaders, as the teachers of the law, the scribes and Pharisees should have been helping people get into the kingdom of heaven, right? Isn't that what religious leaders should be doing? They should be teaching the truth. They should be pointing people to the kingdom of heaven, pointing people to the Messiah. And yet they were not doing that. They were the ex experts in the Old Testament law. They should have been showing how, hey, look at what Jesus is doing. Now let's go look at the Old Testament. He's, he's fulfilling exactly what the prophets said the Messiah would be doing. Wow. They, they should have been like John the Baptist, right, who wasn't in the line of the prophets, pointing people to Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what the, the religious leaders should have been doing. They should have been first in line, right? They should have been mowing out the red carpet for the Messiah. They should have been first in line, joyfully following Christ and calling on the Jews to, to follow him as well, right? Isn't that what leadership is about? Leadership is about influence. It's about kind of charting the course and having people follow you. So that was the, the job of these religious leaders. That's what they should have been doing, but instead they were doing the exact opposite. They had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They, they refused to believe the clear evidence that was right there before their eyes as Jesus did these mighty works, as he taught with authority, as he fulfilled the Old Testament predictions. They wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't accept it because their hearts were hard. They would not have Jesus be their king. Therefore, they chose, like Jesus says, they were choosing not to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, that's Matthew's way of saying the kingdom of God. They were choosing not to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus was bringing in, the kingdom that Jesus was offering. They wouldn't enter. But it was worse than that, wasn't it? Because they were the religious leaders. Not only would they refuse to enter, but they were keeping others from entering as well. That's what Jesus says. Again, because they were the leaders, people looked up to the scribes and the Pharisees. They were well-respected. They, they looked like they were, you know, so religious. And, and, you know, they were the ones who knew the word the best. So naturally people looked to them and to see, you know, what they taught and how they acted. And here they are. They're actively preaching against Jesus. They're actively preaching against the message that Jesus brought concerning the kingdom. Here we know they're already plotting against him, and very soon they're going to actually stir up the people to reject Jesus and to call for his death. So these Pharisees and scribes, these religious leaders, they have a deadly influence on the people. Again, as I was reading that verse there, it just the picture that kept coming to my mind is, is shutting the door and slamming the door in someone's face. Like someone is, is you know, hearing Jesus, is, is kind of intrigued and, and, and listening and wanting to know more and, and, and maybe considering following him. And they get in there and they, they shut the door right there in their face. Almost like they, they redirect them from following Jesus to who? To following them. That's what they're doing. No, don't follow Jesus. Come follow us. Follow us in our, our religion of externalism and in our religion of all these traditions. Rather than people entering the kingdom of heaven and finding life, eternal life, they're leading them down the path of eternal destruction. And look at verse 15. It's not, not only were they 
reacting to people who were maybe starting to show an interest in Christ. But it's like they're, they're, they're being proactive. And this is kind of interesting because we don't normally think of the Jews being like evangelistic, so to speak. But evidently at that, at that time, the religious leaders were doing that. They were traveling around seeking to make converts, seeking to convert people to their traditions, to their way of, of, of thinking and living. Remember, we talked about what that is. They were, uh, they, they had a, a religion of externalism, a religion of legalism. And they were, they were trying to convert people to that, trying to assimilate people into that way of thinking. So again, instead of pointing people to Christ like they should have been, they were pointing them to, them, to themselves. They were making disciples, right? We talk about making disciples. They were making disciples, all right, but they were making disciples of their legalistic traditions. Remember what that was, where they, they would take the, the Word of God and they would put all these extra rules on it, right? All these hedges around the law, and they elevated that to the place of Scripture and said, yeah, that's what you've got to do, that's what you've got to do, that's what you've got to do to be right with God. Jesus says, well, you guys do this, but yet when you make these converts, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Child of hell means someone destined for hell, someone who's headed for hell. Yes, you're lost because you're rejecting me, but now as you make these converts, it's like they're even in worse shape, Jesus says. And, and that is kind of an interesting phenomenon. I don't know if you noticed that, but um, sometimes, or oftentimes, we can say probably, Disciples become even more radical than their teachers. Have you ever noticed that? Um, you know, you may have a certain preacher, you know, who preaches, you know, has a certain position on, on whatever, in time, it doesn't matter. And, you know, they have that position and that's what they hold. Well, then the people that really like that preacher, man, you know, they're, I've noticed this in interactive, they send, they become even more radical on that position than the original guy was, you know? And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. As you make these converts and, and, and suck them into your um, legalistic tradition, now they're going to be even more zealous and more radical for that. And they're going to be even more in bondage to that false teaching, that false religion. So it's bad enough that the Pharisees and scribes were, were missing the kingdom themselves. But again, what's even more tragic is that by their false teaching, by their behavior, they're leading others astray as well. The Pharisees and scribes had so cluttered up the word of God with their tradition that they were causing people to, to miss God's heart in the law, to miss God's Messiah, to miss the, the promised one, the one that the scriptures had pointed to. They were causing people to miss him, even though he was right there in front of them. They hindered people from following Christ. And again, just, just like then, the same thing can happen now. False religion hinders people from following Christ, doesn't it? And again, false religion, if we're talking about false teaching, that certainly hinders people from following Christ because that preaches a false gospel. It, it distorts the gospel and creates maybe a, a man, a, a works-based gospel or a or uh, encourages people to, to fashion God in their own, make a God of their own making, right? Well, my God is this, and my God is that. Uh, that, that, that 
hinders people from following Christ, that leads people astray from following the truth. A, a religion that majors on externals and focuses on keeping man-made rules, that distorts the gospel, that leads people astray. Because they, they're taught, whether it's explicitly or just taught by implication, that, oh, if I just keep this list of rules, then I'm going to be right with God. I'm going to be accepted by God if I just keep doing, you know, whatever it is. ABC. It's false religion. That, that hinders people. That leads them down the broad path that leads to destruction. And we see the apostles constantly having to battle that kind of false teaching, don't we? Paul was constantly battling the false teaching of, of the Judaizers, right? You want to talk about the evangelists, right? These, these zealous Jews who would go around and everywhere the gospel was spreading, they'd go around and say, no, 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 you got to follow the Old Testament law, you got to be circumcised, you got to do all these other things to make sure you're right with, with God. Paul was constantly having to battle against that false teaching. Some quick examples, Titus 3, 4 through 7. Is the, again, Paul refuting that, teaching the true gospel, fighting the false teaching by proclaiming what the good news of Jesus Christ. Titus 3, 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Galatians, he was battling this big time in Galatians, battling the Judaizers, trying to take these Gentiles and bring them under the, the law and under the tradition. Galatians 2.16, Paul says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, every... There's a lot of false teaching out there, isn't there? But if you think about it, basically every other teaching, every form of false teaching is some kind of man-centered, man... Uh, some kind of teaching that relies on works. And so please understand that the only way a person, a sinner like us, can be made right with a holy God is through Christ. It's, it's a gift by God's grace. It's not anything we do. We don't, we don't try to clean ourselves up. We don't try to come to church and, and start doing right things and, and, and you know, start trying to do less bad things. Yeah, all of that may come should come later once God saves us, right? That should be the fruit of a changed life. But we are saved by grace alone, God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's our only hope, to be saved, because none of us can be good enough. None of, I mean, there was no one more zealous than the, than the Pharisees, right? You want to talk about somebody who, who tried to, you know, dot every I and cross every T. They did it. But what Jesus is showing, and, and this isn't the first time he's called them out on this, right? But he's saying, guys, look at your heart. You're, you're, you're a sinner. You need forgiven. Only God can cleanse your heart through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the same 
outstanding. So false religion, false teaching hinders people from following Christ. And like we talked about last week, and so I won't belabor it, but hypocrisy, another uh, aspect of false religion. Hypocrisy among those claiming to be Christians can bring a lot of harm and hinder people from following Christ. Christian and I have all this in quotes, by the way. Christian parents, right, exasperating their kids with, with, with all law and no grace. Christians in the workplace or wherever being strict and orthodox but showing no love, no, showing no hope. Christian students having ungodly testimonies with their classmates, right? And I know we all, we all still struggle with sin. I'm not suggesting that you know, we should never sin. We're talking about if that's the pattern of your behavior, if there's there's no love, no fruit of the spirit, no grace, but yet you're claiming to be a Christian, then for one, you know, you need to examine your own heart, right, before the Lord, but for two, it is hindering people from following Christ. Because they they unbelievers look at that and they say, Why why should I follow Christ? You know? They don't. They're more unloving than I am. They're, they're more hopeless than I am. So the scribes and the Pharisees hinder people from coming to Christ. And again, my prayer is that may, may we never do that. Again, we're, we're sinners. We're imperfect. We're not, not saints. But let's just be real with people. Let's, let's, you know, when we sin, let's confess our sins. Let's continually uh, point people to Christ. My hope is in Christ. And I know I'm the chief of sinners, but he has forgiven me because I have a great Savior. I don't deserve it, but it's God's grace. So Jesus continues with another woe in verse 16. Woe to you blind guides. If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that is made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it, by him who dwells on it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, by him who sits upon it. You see what he's dealing with? He's dealing with making oaths, right? Swearing, making oaths. So that's the specific application. I've summarized and, and broadened it out. The, the theme you could write here in your notes is they trivialize God's commands. They trivialize God's commands. Making oaths was an Old Testament act of worship. But like everything, the scribes and Pharisees had added to the law, added to God's word, their own tradition. All these rules, all these specific applications, which were supposed to serve as hedges around the law. But like we said actually became such a burden that it, 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 it crushed and snuffed out the spirit behind the law. But here's another thing that their tradition did, and as we see this in this case. They would add so many rules, so many specific applications, that in their, in their wickedness, they would do this as a way of actually circumventing the law. Right? So they say, okay, yeah, we're supposed to make oaths, and I know I'm supposed to keep my word, and this and that, but we say, and in rabbinic literature of the, of the time showed this, that at the time, they, the, the thinking of the rabbis, the thinking of the tradition was, 
Well, swearing by the temple doesn't bind you to your oath. You can swear by the temple, and it'll kind of look good, right, in front of people, but you're not really bound by it. But if you're going to make an oath and really, really mean it, then you've got to swear by the gold of the temple. You see, they, they made all these distinctions. Why? So they could... And what they were doing is they were trying to create loopholes for themselves. You know, they're trying to say, how can, I, how can I still look good but not really have to keep my word? So they had these same man-made nuances when it came to the altar. If I swear by the altar, that's nothing, right? I don't really have to keep that. But if I swear by the gift on the altar, then I'm bound by it. I kind of put it in our modern vernacular or modern picture. Kind of like a kid who, who you know, says something, but but they have their fingers crossed behind their back, right? Which I never understood that, but you know, but that's kind of what they were doing. Oh yeah, I'll make this oath, but I don't really mean it. Their tradition was teaching people to lie, teaching people to play fast and loose with God's word, with His commands. And so Jesus calls them fools and blind guides. Interesting, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't just waste words, right? Fools, and, and in Scripture, a fool is not so much talking about a person's intellectual ability, right? It's more talking about their moral character. They're living as someone, uh, you know, who has rejected God, who's, who's got a, a, a foolish, hardened heart against God's word. They're wicked. They're blind. He says, blind guides. They have no spiritual perception. They have no wisdom. How can they possibly lead people, right? Think about that. A blind guide. How can they be leading people when they themselves don't get it? They don't have spiritual life. Jesus shows them that when you make an oath, you're making an oath by God himself. So your evasive oaths, your your gymnastics that you do with your wording, that, that's, that amounts to lying. It doesn't matter if you have your fingers crossed or not. If you don't keep your word, if you're, as we said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, if your yes is not yes, your no is not no, then you're lying. Right? So that's what he calls them out on. Their tradition gave them an excuse to, to violate the, the spirit of, of a lot of God's commands. They were trivializing God's commands. And I was trying to think, you know, each, with each one of these, I'm trying to Think, well, how, how, do, how can Christians perhaps fall into that? How can we be guilty of trivializing God's commands? Well, maybe you could think of other examples, but, you know, this idea of how close can I get to the line without actually sinning? Right? You know, with matters of purity or whatever it is. What, what technically is sin? You know, how close can I get? That's trivializing God's commands, isn't it? I did not technically lie because I never said words that were untrue, even though we purposely deceived, right? We led someone to believe something that wasn't true, but maybe I didn't actually say words that were not true. You go, oh, I didn't lie. No, you did. Right? Those are just a couple of examples that came to my mind. I'm sure there's more. Then in verse 23, Jesus gives a fourth woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Again, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I summarize this fourth rule like this. They neglect God's priorities. This is what false religion is doing, right? It's, it's focusing on the externals all the while missing God's heart. Missing God's priorities. With this woe, Jesus warns the, the scribes and Pharisees. He tells them, you guys are majoring on the minors. While ignoring the most important matters. The Pharisees were known for being precise tithers, right? And, and so what he's saying, I mean, apparently they did this, right? They get out in their... I'm not even quite sure how you would do this, but they get out there in their herb garden, right? You know, and just, okay, well, it sprouted this many things, or I've got to tithe this much off of it, or whatever. You know, doing all this, being very meticulous about that. And okay, tithing's good. But the problem was they were neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Remember a few weeks ago when, when Jesus was talking about the, the, the greatest commands, how they had weightier commands? Love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Kind of same thing here. They, they neglected the weightier matters of the law. What does God care most about? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Did you notice that in the scripture reading of Amos? What was he, what was he condemning, condemning them for? They had the externals down, right? They, they were doing their sacrifices. They were doing their burnt offerings. But they were not being just to the poor. They were not... Being kind to those who, who needed help. And so he's like, you guys are ignoring the, the most important things. Justice, faithfulness, mercy, or, or kindness, right? That's another way of thinking of mercy. We're central to the ethic that God expected from his people. Many of you probably know the, the, the verse in Micah. One of the minor prophets. Micah 6 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Another prophet, Zechariah 7, verse 8 says, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So you see, Jesus is calling them out, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, saying, you're so fervent, you're so scrupulous about tithing that you'll even count out the number of leaves. But you totally ignore the central commands of God's love, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Yes, God's people were supposed to tithe, but they were also to show mercy. They were to love justice. They were to walk humbly with their God. And it's kind of funny here. Maybe it raised your eyebrows when we read it. He says to the religious leaders, you strain a gnat, but swallow out a camel. What's it? Why did he go there, right? Well, um, apparently, again, in the literature of the day, there was debate about this, right? They, um, you know, they, they would be like, well, if a gnat gets in my food as I'm eating it, does that make it unclean, right? Does that make me ceremonially unclean? Well, no, it doesn't, right? Added protein, right? You know? But, you know, some of them thought it did, and so they would strain out a gnat. But he says, you guys will go to that trouble, but you're actually swallowing a camel. And what he's using as a play on words is because in the Aramaic, you know, 
disjunctive, but in the Aramaic, gnat and camel sound very similar. And a gnat wasn't unclean, so what I heard, right? Was not unclean. A camel was unclean. So he's just saying, you guys are going to all this trouble and worrying about, you know, oh, does it make you unclean? Meanwhile, you're actually swallowing something that does make you unclean. And you see the point he's making. You guys are going to, you worry so much about the externals that you miss God's heart. You guys are majoring on the minors while neglecting the major commands of God's law. Churches can be guilty of this too, can't we? Churches can be guilty of majoring on fringe doctrines while neglecting the gospel. How often do you see that in churches? Or majoring on religious externals. You gotta you know, dress a certain way, you gotta you know, not do these things, all the while missing God's priorities of loving God and loving neighbor. Churches sometimes miss the opportunity to show God's love, to minister to the gospel to someone who comes in, on, let's say, off the street because, oh, well, they're not dressed properly or they, they don't conform to this outward mold that we've said that we expect everyone to be in. By God's grace, I, I feel like um, God has spared us from that error, but let's just be mindful of it, okay? lest we fall into that. God makes it clear he's more concerned with his people showing mercy, helping those in need, than he is about our externals and religious norms that we have created. So in verses 25 and 28, Jesus pronounces two more woes on the Jewish religious leaders. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what, how do you summarize these woes, woe five and six? They focus on externals while neglecting their heart. They focus on externals while neglecting their heart. They were meticulous, again, about keeping cups and plates spotless, ritually clean. Remember earlier, Matthew, we saw them uh, getting on to Jesus and his disciples because they didn't wash their hands and it was all this ceremonial cleanliness that they were so concerned about. But Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you're so concerned about purity on the outside, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. I'll come back to verse 26 in a second. Notice in 27, Jesus gives another example, calls them out on another way that they're focusing on externals while neglecting their hearts. They would whitewash tombs, and part of that, okay, fine, they're wanting to mark them because they didn't want someone accidentally walking over a tomb or bumping into a tomb, and because that would make them ceremonial and clean for like seven days. So yeah, fine, mark them. But they, you know, not only would they mark them, but then they would, they would decorate them and make them all pretty and nice and clean, and again, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but Jesus is using it as an example. You guys are like those tombs. You're all prim and proper and, and you know, got, remember what I just talked about, got your big boxes and your long tassels and your, on the outside, but inside your heart is full of the 
It's like that tomb is full of unclean, uncleanness, uncleanliness. Dead man's bones. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. The Bible says. Again, it's a good reminder to us, isn't it? God cares about our heart. We've seen that theme come up quite, quite often in Matthew, right? The Sermon on the Mount is all about that. God knows our heart. We may be able to fool people on the outside. Put on our Sunday best or put on a, a smile or whatever the case is. But God knows our hearts. God knows if we're far from God. God knows if we uh, have come to, again, not perfectly, but we've, we've come conflicted perhaps, but He knows if we're coming in sincerity, really wanting to seek the Lord, really wanting to worship Him, really, really desiring to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Are we just coming to, to look good? So Jesus tells them to direct their attention to their hearts. Now I'm going to go back to verse 26. This is an important principle that you need to, you need to understand. Important truth. You blind Pharisees, or Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. See, and this is part of the nature of the woes. Did you notice this in Hosea? They're a call to repent, right? They're a call to change. Even, even now, he's, he's calling on the, the religious leaders to repent, forsake your sin, run to God for mercy, and God will cleanse your heart. And once God cleanses you, purifies you on the inside, then you'll be completely clean. And what we need to see is the issue is our heart. Once God does the regenerating work in our hearts, then the rest of us will be affected in a positive way, right? Then, by God's grace, we can bear the fruit of the Spirit. God must transform us from the inside out. And our human tendency is to get this backwards, isn't it? We often, we think, oh, I've got to clean myself up, right? You know, I, I've got to, you know, maybe we're convicted about not, you know, being far from God or about not following Christ. And so we, i got to do better. I've got to clean myself up. No, you've got to run to Christ. You've got to run to God and say, God, I need you. My, my heart is wicked. It's full of sin. Please, give me a new heart. Cleanse me. Change me. Jesus teaches that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. No one can enter the kingdom of God. No one can have eternal life unless God gives them a new heart from the inside. We need God. We need his spirit to give us that new heart, to save us from our sin, to give us the new birth, to make us new creations. Again, this, this is a reminder to us, even as Christians, those whom he has by his grace given new hearts, that let us be aware of the danger of externalism. So even in our sanctification, we sometimes uh, just gravitate to, okay, how can I modify my behavior, right? How can I change this? But what does Scripture tell us to do? Scripture tells us to guard our hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the, the wellsprings of life, Proverbs 4.23. If we only address the external while neglecting our hearts, what's going to happen? We're going to become pharisaical. It's not going to lead to lasting change. But if we give first priority to caring for our hearts, daily meditating on the gospel, confessing sin, being 
careful to guard our hearts, but be careful what we take into our hearts. Then, by God's grace, our hearts will, will, will stay pure and healthy, and the Holy Spirit will bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. There's a cross-reference tonight. Look up Luke 6.45. Meditate on that. Jesus talks about how the abundance of the heart amounts to Focus on our hearts. This is what we try to focus on in counseling and discipleship. Again, we're not just about behavior modification, not just, well, hey, you need to say five nice things to your, to your wife every day, right? And again, there might be some of that. I mean, it doesn't, you know, those things are not necessarily bad, but it's got to be more than that. What are you wanting? Why, why are you responding this way? What are you thinking? What are you believing in that moment? What, what has... What has seized your heart? What is the, you know, as we would say, what is the idol in your heart? This is important parenting as well. Right? That both shepherding a child's heart. We have to be careful in our discipline not to just deal with externals like we're running some kind of boot camp, you know? Yes, we have to respond to the outward behavior. Yes, we have to deal with it. But the, the wiser and godly parent knows that that behavior is coming from a heart. So in our discipline and in our training, we have to address the heart, prayerfully shepherding the child's heart toward Christ, giving them the gospel, modeling for them grace, and, and praying like crazy for God to change their hearts, because only God can do that. Right? We'll, we'll conclude with the seventh world here. I'll, I'll go over it quickly. The seventh and final world, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up in the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed from the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon you in this generation. I summarize it will seven this way. They give lip service, but they actually reject the word of God. Have you ever known people who do that? <laughs> they give lip service. Jesus accuses the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees here of having the same evil spirit that their ancestors had who killed the prophets. So what was happening here? I'll just try to say this quickly. It's like at that time, I guess the scribes and the Pharisees were, were trying to make reparations, you know, as in, using our modern vernacular, right? They're saying, oh, you know, that's too bad that our ancestors killed all these prophets that were sent from God. And so let's build them monuments and memorials, you know? And I guess they felt pretty good about the fact that they were doing that. You know, oh, here's a memorial to, you know, Isaiah, who was, who was killed, you know? Okay, fine. But, and and in, in so doing, you see what they're saying? They're like, well, yeah, if, man, if we had lived back then, we wouldn't have rejected the prophets. If we had lived back then, we would have listened to, to the prophets. We would have repented or, or you know, 
certainly not have rejected and killed him. And Jesus calls them out on it and says, yes, you would have. And you know how I know you would have? Because you're doing it now. You're doing it now. You, John the Baptist was kind of the, the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. He, what was he doing? Same thing that all the prophets were doing, pointing toward the coming of the Messiah, except John the Baptist was there in real time with the Messiah, physically pointing toward him. There he is! Follow him! Did the Pharisees and the religious leaders embrace that? No. They rejected that message because they rejected Jesus. Jesus himself is speaking as a, as a prophet, right? Proclaiming the kingdom of God, telling people to repent. I'm, the king is here. The kingdom is here. Are they, are they embracing that? No. What are they doing? Rejecting, wanting to kill Jesus. Same thing. They haven't changed. And so that's why he says, what verse does he say? Your sons of... I kind of got off my notes here, so I'll just have to try to find it. But he says, your, your sons of them... I can't find it. Verse 31. You are sons of those who killed the prophets. And by sons there, he doesn't just mean, well, yeah, you're in the lineage, you're in the line of them. In the scripture, sons of means you bear the resemblance of them, right? You look just like your dad. Right? And he's saying, I see it in you guys. You're still rejecting the word of God. And so he calls them out on it. Pay, pay attention, please, to verse 32. He says, by doing this, you are filling up the measure of their... They are filling up the measure of their fathers. This is important. This will prepare us for what's to come in the next chapter. Jesus says there's a limit to rebellion against God. God is only going to be patient for so long. Remember, what is a woe? It's an oracle of coming judgment. Go ahead and finish what your fathers started. Your fathers, in their rejection, they were building up this wrath of God. You guys go ahead and reject me and put it over the top. The picture that came to my mind, have you ever been to a water park and they have the giant, giant buckets or whatever it is, right? Looks like a water tower being turned upside down or something. And it's being filled up, filled up, filled up, filled up. And as soon as it gets full enough, what does it do? Tips over, pours out on you, right? That's the picture. And this is, I mean, this is a sobering, scary picture. He's saying that's the picture. That's what's happening to God's wrath. It, God's... I mean, judgment has come in, in, in ways already, but the, the rejection, the rejection, the rejection has been boom, 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 happening. God's wrath has been building up, building up. You guys are about ready to fill it up to the top, and it's going to spill. It's going to pour out of you guys. And that's why he's going to weep over Jerusalem. And that's why chapter 24 is going to talk about terrible destruction that's coming. stern, sobering words from Jesus in our passage today. And again, they sh we should take note. Let us not miss this. That Jesus' Jesus's harshest words are reserved for the religious leaders because they were hypocrites in leading people astray. And even as Christians, there can easily be a little bit of Pharisee in us. Now here's where we got to speak the gospel to ourselves too. Praise God that Jesus' blood cleanses us who are in Christ cleanses us from these sins of hypocrisy and, and externalism. And so when we fall into these sins, let us confess them and, and repent and, and cling to the finished work of Christ. 
by God's grace, loved ones, let us guard our hearts against legalism, guard our hearts against hypocrisy and externalism. Let us stay focused on Christ and the gospel. And let us daily pour the gospel into our hearts so that we may worship and serve the Lord God in spirit and in truth. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for these warnings. up on the outside, Lord, because of Christ. He's the one who lived a perfect life and yet bore our, our punishment on the cross. We're thankful for grace, Lord, that we can be real, transparent with each other, that we, we don't have to try to pretend like we have it all together. We don't have to put on this aura, you know, like that we're so holy. We can admit our struggles. We can confess and he tell us to confess our sins to, each, to one another because our hope is in Christ. May we be people who are, are just people who revel in grace and who extend grace to, to one another and, and also to those on the outside, Lord, those whom you may be drawing to yourself. Lord, please use us as a church that can point people to Christ. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.